Welcome to Kolisha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kolisha. I'm your hostess, Rebecca Feldman, and today I wanted to take a look at a topic um, that has a lot of relevance to so many people, and particularly many, many Jewish people and those in the firm community. And that is the topic of trauma, and particularly in the subcategory of trauma, um, attachment trauma. Um, so today I have with us a guest who specializes in this area. Her name is Esty Marcus. She went to Turo School of Social Work, and she's a licensed <laughs> clinical social worker. And she has a private practice in Brooklyn, New York. And Esty specializes in trauma therapy and also particularly in attachment trauma. So welcome, Esty. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Esty, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, um, what got you interested in therapy and trauma in particular? Um, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be a therapist. I think as a young girl, I always thought about being a therapist. I've always just been really interested in people and how they work and how they, what makes them operate in different ways. Um, and I've always been interested in looking at things in a thematic way. I guess that's the analytical part of me. Um, and so seeing things and themes um it's always was interesting to me so that's why i ended up pursuing social work um so Esty, why trauma in particular i think that there's i don't think that there's really anyone in the world that isn't touched by something difficult that has happened in their lives um, that doesn't mean that every single person is traumatized, but every person has been impacted by something difficult. And as I, I, I think I started out um, working as a therapist um, just at a mental health clinic and came across different kind, the general kind of issues like um, depression and anxiety and maybe a little bit more of the severe um, mental health issues like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder um, or personality disorders Um, but I realized that so much of it was related to trauma and the trauma history of the person Um, and of course when we're talking about trauma a lot of times people think of it as um, what we call big T trauma like trauma with a big T so those are the more severe things or that are easily labeled as that was traumatic. Someone was sexually assaulted. Um, someone was in a, a bad accident. Someone experienced a, a severe loss in their life. Those are sometimes easily labeled as trauma. Um, but what's less obvious sometimes, but I think becomes more obvious as I worked as a therapist, is the trauma that we call little t trauma, which are the maybe what we see as smaller traumas, but could still have a really significant impact on people. So, what I would be an example the, of that? So, just the general terminology that, like the way that we refer to it, is um, death by a thousand cuts. 
So getting one paper cut is not the most devastating thing in the world, but getting a thousand paper cuts over an extended period of time can be really devastating. So, and, and that can manifest itself in many different ways, um, especially because so much about trauma is, a, is about the way that a person reacts to it and what, what kind of um, resiliencies are in place for the person and how adaptive they are. Um, so there's so many different factors that come into place. But an example of uh, small, small T trauma, which I feel even strange calling it small T because it makes it seem as if it's less significant, but I've seen the devastating effects of it, um, is the trauma of neglect, the trauma of... And when I say neglect, I'm not... Again, I'm referring to a small T trauma. So a, lot, a big T trauma of neglect might be where you see a child in a home that you know has no food, has no um, parental supervision, um, is missing school all the time, is is never doing their homework, looks uh, disheveled and unkempt. That that would be like the obvious signs of of trauma of the trauma of neglect. But what I'm referring to is the neglect of. Um, a child experiencing um, a deep um, emotional response to something and the parent or someone or a caretaker or someone who's a significant attachment figure to them, looking at them with disgust, with disinterest. Probably one of the most painful things is the, is disinterest, just, you know, where it doesn't even register with the person, with the other person that, that there's something going on emotionally with the child. And that can have devastating effects, especially in the formation of shame and then the, and the difficulty processing the shame that comes up with those kinds of um, traumas. So essentially their emotional needs are not met. Yeah. Okay. That's the, uh, yeah. The, short, the short version. <laughs> So, so you're saying that someone who over time, you know, over and over their emotional needs are not met, winds up having a similar manifestation as someone who had a major traumatic event happen to them. Is that, is that accurate? Definitely. That's very accurate. And, um, one of the reasons why this happens like that is because one of the primary things that a mother is responsible for. And just to clarify for any listeners, I'm gonna refer to the mother-child relationship. That's not to exclude any um, adoptive mothers. It's not to exclude fathers and their significant role. It's not to exclude um, teachers and other attachment figures that might be significant in a child's life, even older siblings or or siblings in the family. Um, But the primary, role of a mother in in terms of relational trauma or to help avoid relational trauma, they're in charge of the affect regulation of the child, uh, of the baby, which means that when a child gets dysregulated, you know, there's, they're in distress, whether they're hungry or tired or need something, the mother is meant to soothe and provide the basic needs of that child, including the emotional needs of the child, because we all know that the emotional needs are just as significant 
as the physical needs um, of a person, especially to the babies as they're developing. Um, so when over time, if the mother is misattuned, is not tuning into the needs of the child, the emotional needs of the child, and is not able to provide a source of safety and security for the child's emotional regulation system, they become dysregulated and then have no way of really getting back to homeostasis, which is what the what the organism, what all organisms are attempting to do. They want to bring themselves back to a calm state. So getting dysregulated or having a, a high emotional response, that's a normal thing to happen to human beings. There's always going to be um, situations that cause a high emotional response. But the mother teaches the child to regulate and also instills a, a level of trust that it's going to be possible to regulate. So even if something dis distressing happens, they'll be able to get back to a place of regulating themselves. But if that was lacking in the early years, and, and sometimes it's, it's lacking not because of neglect or intentional neglect, sometimes it's lacking because maybe the parent is going through their own trauma or they they lost a job or they have a sickness going on and it's difficult to attune to the child, um, then over time, as if there's a significant amount of misattunement and neglect, emotional um, neglect, the child never learns to really regulate when they become dysregulated. And that means that when they become dysregulated, um, it's almost they become stuck in that emotional state and it's very difficult for them to be adaptive and flexible and just move in and out of emotional states because they have no way of really ensuring that they can get back to that state so then if they a child or you know later on in their adult life the same child gets very emotional about something say like they get very angry or very upset or very sad basically they have a hard time moving past that and getting back to like their baseline pretty much yeah it takes more effort and depending on the type of trauma there was um and depending on the type of attachment there was they may um look to different resources to help them get to a regulated state sometimes they may become overly dependent on other people to regulate their emotions um, sometimes they may become overly dependent on different substances to help regulate their emotions. And sometimes they may become overly dependent on shutting down emotionally and disconnecting and dis disengaging so that they don't ever get to a dis they don't ever get um, disrupted or dysregulated. Mm -hmm. um, those are different strategies to try to help them cope in place of the parent teaching them, how to cope and then that getting internalized and then they could rely on their own internalized model of regulating. So basically they, they lack healthy coping skills. They turn to unhealthy sort of coping methods like the ones you just mentioned. Okay. And I, I do want to clarify one thing though, that just because someone um, has a secure attachment and therefore they're able to rely on their they're able to rely on their internal coping model of um, regulating, that does not mean that they don't need other people or um, relate to other people, depend on other people to help soothe them. 
It just means that they more flexibly can go in and out of either relying on someone else or relying on themselves, utilizing their own resources and utilizing the resources around them. They, they can easily adapt to what's available to them, knowing that it's going to be available and that they will be able to get sued. So they're more secure people? Is that accurate? They're, they're more securely attached to okay. people. Um, Build healthier relationships, sort of? You know, I don't, I, I don't want to generalize since a lot of times, you know, again, trauma could impact people in different ways, but we do see that people with secure attachments um, do have easier time regulating their emotions, which, which does lead to them having uh, better or more healthy relationships because they don't get caught up in their emotions or lose sight of the full picture of something and they're just more adaptive and flexible and easier to relate to. Okay. So with that background in mind, um, I, I found this topic very fascinating when I first learned about it. Um, I didn't. I certainly don't don't know nearly as much uh, about the topic as you do. Um, but when I first heard about this big T versus little T trauma concept and how um, you know the the effects of smaller traumas or just smaller like unhealthy sort of manifestations of relationships over time um, can affect a person so significantly, one of the main things that popped into my mind was. something that affects a lot of Jewish people, which is the effects of the Holocaust. Because we know now from research and data that's been gathered about, you know, children of Holocaust survivors, now grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, that, of course, the trauma of the Holocaust could probably be labeled as a big T trauma for the people that went through it. It was like, you know, major. Um, But for those who, you know, are descendants of those people, they now are dealing with a lot of the effects of the Holocaust indirectly. Would that be considered a little T trauma for like a Holocaust survivor's child or grandchild? That's a very good question. And it also definitely relates back to what was interesting, always interested me in trauma as well, since I am the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And and I think just as the Jewish people, we do have a lot of trauma in our history, and there's just been generation after generation where trauma is being transmitted from generation to generation. Um, so it's possible that someone who's a child or a grandchild of a Holocaust survivor could experience trauma, um, and it's possible that they could even experience it as a big T trauma, um, depending on what the the results are of that of that other big T trauma. In other words, someone could be a survivor of the Holocaust and uh, unfortunately become completely incapable of um, giving affection to another person, or maybe become so preoccupied with survival and anxiety and can't really um, provide the basic nurturing and functions that they would need to give to a child. So it is possible that even big teacher trauma could get transmitted. But generally, um, it's more this little T trauma that gets transmitted from generation to generation, which is basically there's a lot of unprocessed trauma and unprocessed um, difficulty regulating emotions and coping with the emotions that come up. And we 
and the parents therefore get stuck in this traumatized state and that's what ends up getting transmitted to the children and the, the babies when they're growing up and then and then the children and then the adults that they become so it is very common for that to happen of course there's lots of different trauma that can lead to that kind of result and it seems like each holocaust survivor survived differently and took the effects differently and some of them like you mentioned you know were able to be more loving some of them were less able because of everything that they had gone through so like you know each of their children grandchildren whatever is probably going to process those effects differently as well and um right and and each person who was in the holocaust themselves experienced their own upbringings and brought different elements of resiliency or attachment to the Holocaust themselves. So, um, you know, one of the things that I studied, I I did a paper on in college, and I was very interested in the topic of um, trauma in the military. And one of the things that I researched was uh, sexual trauma amongst female soldiers. And it, it was so rare for a soldier to experience sexual trauma as the first trauma that they ever experienced. In other words, most people, most of the women who had enlisted in the army um, were already traumatized people, Um, that there had been some trauma in their early childhood or formative years that led them to that place. And then they experience sexual trauma on top of that. So it's like exacerbated. So it always makes me think about what does the person bring to the table when they're traumatized? And then how they leave it or how they walk away from it will also um, be impacted by that. And Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, this isn't so much a true... I mean, maybe I guess you could say it is trauma in a sense, but um, my grandmother is a Holocaust survivor and um, she always told us that the reason that she was able to survive was because she knew what it was like to go to bed hungry because her family was very, very poor. So there wasn't a lot of food. And she uh, also had this arrangement where like she would stay by her grandmother a lot and then like go home at night. And like her parents assumed she ate at her grandmother and her grandmother assumed she was going to eat at her parents. And like a lot of nights she wound up not eating. And she said like, like the wealthy girls didn't make it because she knew what it was like to be hungry and how to survive with nothing. So, you know, to your point, what they brought with them gave them the tools for survival, you know, and then their experiences sort of shaped that as well. One thing to, it's important to differentiate between, um, and this is just um, an understanding of what's happening versus I'm not judging anyone or how they experience anything, but there's a big difference between surviving and thriving or living afterwards. Right. So some of these tools that may have have helped a person um, survive, they still could be extremely traumatized and not and still be in that survival mode even after the trauma because they've been traumatized. So it doesn't really help them adapt or actually live. Like what happens when they're not um, in times of starvation, or they do have money, and and how do they, how do they cope with that? Um, and so, a lot of the people that I see um, who have been traumatized, they're still living in the trauma as survivors, which is a, an incredible um, 
strength to survive. Um, but then when you're not in the position, you're not being traumatized anymore, but still living as a survivor, it's so painful to see that, that to not be able to live with vitality because the focus is so much on survival. So do you mean like, you know, they, when, once the trauma's past them, they can't get over it and they still live, like they can't enjoy what they do have at the moment because they're sort of like gearing up for like the other shoe to drop or... Sometimes that can be, but basically if someone has a trauma response, then then somewhere emotionally and neurologically, they're stuck in that trauma. And when someone's stuck in a trauma, like think about it, I mean, you're a nurse in the ER, someone's coming in with some sort of trauma or crisis, you're not asking them about what do you enjoy? What kind of music do you like? You know, what, what did you have for dinner? What are you passionate about? You don't have time to talk about those things or even focus on those things. It's just about survival, and it's not even a choice. It's your your brain is wired to survive. Um, so without treatment and without a place to really process the trauma and then come back to a place of resiliency and um, regulation, emotion regulation, it's going to be it will be hard to live a life that's like filled with vitality and flexibility and adaptiveness. So they can't enjoy what they have in the moment because they're so stuck still as a tr- as if they're experiencing the trauma currently. Mm-hmm. Unless they've worked to sort of get past that. And you you know you mentioned that um as Jews our whole uh history has been very traumatic which made me think like, you know, as a granddaughter of Eastern European Jews, I tend to think about the Holocaust a lot, but um, around the same time, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East were like getting expelled from their homes in like Syria and Egypt and Morocco. And, you know, some of them had to leave under very traumatic circumstances. Like, you know, one of my friends uh, told me her father uh, was from Afghanistan and he was like smuggled out of the country in like the hollow backseat of a car. I mean, as a child, like those are extremely traumatic experiences too. I think the Holocaust certainly was such a major trauma that it overshadows a lot. Um, and maybe rightfully so, but people who were living in other areas of the world around the same time also went through major traumas, you know, it wasn't just, just the Holocaust itself. Um, and yeah, our, our ancestors probably carry a lot of trauma going back from many generations. So that's really interesting. Well, I think the other thing to always keep in mind is that as much as we have trauma going back generation to generation, we also have a lot of resiliency and certain qualities that have kept us not just as survivors, but as resilient thrivers that has also been passed down from generation to generation. Like, and I often think about that, um, especially like, you know, the that Rahmanim, Baishanim, and Gomei Chasadim, like that those are the three characteristics of um, Jewish people. And like those are character traits that are also passed down. And those three qualities really do help with resiliency and coping. Um, so I, I think that that's um, an important part of looking at trauma. Um, and that's something that I've been very aware of, especially lately, that a lot of trauma treatment is, or a way of thinking about trauma is about attention. Um, and I don't 
mean attention deficit disorder, but in a way it is attention deficit disorder in that trauma requires your full attention, which means all you can give attention to is the thing that's traumatizing. And it's biologically, so it makes sense that we, we need to focus on the thing that's causing danger so that we can focus on survival. So that's all we can give our attention to. And that prohibits us from really having giving attention to all the other things that are also around us and that also provide comfort and support and um, emotion regulation and resiliency and so on because all we can focus in on is that thing that's causing trauma. So even talking about how trauma is passed down from generation to generation, I think it's important to keep as part of the picture that that's not the only thing that's passed down from generation to generation. So we mentioned um, those three character traits, Rahman and Vaishan and Gomi Chasadim. Like, can you give an example of like how that how those or one of those would help, you know, sort of counterbalance the trauma that either an individual or like as a group we've experienced in the past? Um, I think that those qualities and uh, you know Rahmanim, which is which I think of as like empathy or more so than pity. It's like empathy mm-hmm. and Vaishanim is humility or like that you're not the beginning and end of the world. There's more than that. And Gomei Chasadim, which is, you know, um, Chasad, where like you could go beyond yourself. And also another part of that is just being able to see beyond yourself. And, and all those three qualities, I think, really do allow someone to see a fuller picture of something. Like to um, empathy is about seeing beyond, you know, seeing what another person might be going through um, and holding space for that. And, and those the other things as well, where it allows a bigger picture. Those three things, though, I think also can often and easily be thought of that it in and of itself is good. And one of the things that I like to focus on a lot in, with, in treatment is that it's not it in and of itself that's good, it's the balance of it. So... In other words, empathy, we know that empathy without bounds, you know, um, Rahman without bounds is not kindness, it's not good. It, everything needs to be in balance. So all those three traits as well in balance. Um, and so like with attention that's spread and holding space, those that's really the focus of um, healthiness and treatment for trauma. So pretty much um, trauma puts you in this like narrow space where you can't see beyond yourself and the trauma that you're going through. And then, you know, if it's something that you haven't worked through or been able to sort of move past, then you stay in that mode for a very long time. And then these three qualities help you to to broaden your view and see beyond yourself. So, it you know, used correctly, that's a little bit of therapy, I guess, where like you sort of heal by being able to create that balance. Is that kind of what you're right. saying? I mean, I just want to clarify that that's just like our own, in our own conversation. I'm not, you know, referring to any um, case studies or any books, but right. it makes sense to No, me. but it's nice to hear it from the perspective, like a Torah perspective, because, you know, psychology doesn't feed off of the Torah. It's its own science and its own study. But, you know, like we know, there's truth in the Torah that correlates to everything in life and so it's nice to be able to put it together and you know with your expertise in mind you can sort of correlate it 
to what we learn and what we study and like what makes sense to us, what we know. And it's true, you know, like beyond psychology, like we see a lot of things that science has figured out and we say, oh, like, you know, we knew that from, from it's in the Talmud, it's in the Gemara, like, you know, whatever it may be. So, you know, it, I think it, it just reaffirms the truth that, that you know and that you've seen in your experience. So, okay, so that was a really interesting background to trauma um, and how it affects so many people, um, many different ways, many different um, expressions of it. However, like an individual has experienced it and, you know, how they carry it with them. Um, but an interesting subcategory that you deal with in particular is attachment trauma, right? Um, you you alluded to it, mentioned it a couple of times briefly, but um, this is another field, another uh, subcategory of trauma that I find so fascinating and I wanted to um, share it with our listeners because um, this affects like literally every single person either in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. And I think that, um, you know, just many might not be aware of it. So can you give us a little bit of uh, understanding of what attachment is and how attachment can be healthy versus traumatic and a little bit of background on the topic? So I'm not going to get into so many details of all the studies. Like if someone's interested, there's a lot of science to back up what, like a lot of clinical studies that were done to back up the, our understanding of attachment um but it's a basic human need to connect with another person um and like i said earlier we often think of the needs as physical and you know shelter clothing food but it is a basic human need to connect to people um so automatically when we're born we start looking for ways to attach and connect to the people around us, usually the primary caregiver, the, the mother. Um, and the attachment styles can end up being either secure or insecure. A secure attachment would lead to a child, um, a baby, um, feeling distressed or having something going on that they need but feeling very attuned to, attended to. They could securely rely on their mother to be interested in their needs, attend to their needs, and also take joy in their in meeting their needs. And the joy is a very significant part of it. Um, when there is an insecure attachment, when the baby has been misattuned to very often, or neglected and not attended to, and the needs have not been met, or the mother doesn't show interest or joy, or the mother gets dysregulated herself from interacting with the child and has no way of coping with it, that could lead to an insecure attachment. And when there's an insecure attachment, the baby basically has to do what it needs to do in order to survive. So like we said, it's a basic human need to attach and connect. If the attachment isn't there naturally, it will do whatever it has to in order to make sure that they get the attachment. So they're, they're really attuned. They're really able to see what needs to happen in order for them to be attended to. They may learn very quickly that in order for them to be attended to, they have to not cry. They have to be quiet. They have to be easygoing. They have to not make a fuss. Um, and that's something that's implicitly learned. They just 
pick up on it and they know that this is what they have to do in order to get their needs met. They may also learn that in order to, that the only way to get their needs met is if they amplify what they're feeling. There's no their mother is not usually tuned into them unless they're very vocal about what they need and then the mother could attend to them, which keeps them learning that the only way to really get attended to is if they relate to the emotion of fear and distress. Like that's their primary way of relating to themselves and other people. So obviously there's a lot of nuance in this and not everyone just falls into one category. Um, and there's a lot of different people that can help form attachments, but those are the primary things that we look at where it's either secure, where it's, they could be, a child does not have to both worry about attachment and regulation because they could rely, safely rely on their parent to help regulate them. But someone with an insecure attachment has to make sure that they get regulated by making sure that they stay attached and, and they, they have to maneuver things, they have to create a strategy in order to stay attached. So the result of that would be that there's that the child would not be able to be spontaneous. Um, the way of relating to people is very objectified, which is I need to be this in order to get that. And I can't just be, I can't just easily rely on the safety and security of, of my mother or father. I, I need to do something emotionally in order to make that happen, in order to get that attention that I need. So at and what age do children learn this, this sort of behavior and how to adapt to it? According to the studies, like by Mary Ainsworth and, and a lot of other studies that were done afterwards, um, this is in the pre-verbal stage, which is usually up to 18 months. Um, and you can see how tuned in a baby is. And if, if the listeners are interested, they could um, look on YouTube for the still face experiment, which is uh, a mother and her baby interacting with each other. And just for a few moments, after a playful interaction with each other, the mother has a still face, no expression, not engaging. And you can see how quickly the baby gets distressed and tries to get the mother's attention. And this is all done pre-verbally. They're just knowing that the mother is disengaged and not attending to them the way that the mother usually does or what they're, they're used to. So you can see in just that short clip, which is very painful to watch, um, how distressed a child becomes when they're not attended to. So they learn all of this based on facial expressions and body language when they're babies. Right. And you can see how much that it becomes part of the way we as adults interact with each other. If I said to you, so nice to meet you, you're not going to believe my words. You're going to believe my tone of voice, my facial expression much more than my, my words. So I can say I'm thrilled to meet you, but sound really down. And that's what you're going to believe. And that already starts when we're babies. So um, say that, you know, for example, if someone is, you know, the mother figure or the main attachment figure is not attentive and doesn't build that healthy attachment before 18 months, 
Um, what are some of the after effects that might be experienced by this individual, you know, when they're two or, or 10 or an adult? So the, the work that I do, I actually only work with adults. Um, so I usually have the adults that those children grow into. So I see it more as um, the after effects much later on, um, just in my clinical work. Um, and sometimes it's more um, deductive, I guess that's the word that I'm looking for, where I can see the way the adult is attaching and therefore learn the way that they might have been attended to or not attended to as a baby. And that's also, there are studies done um, with adult attachments that can predict what the what the attachment style was when they were babies. So there is um, what to rely on to assume that if someone has a certain attachment style as an adult, you can um, infer a lot about the way that they were attended to as babies. But some of the things that uh, might come up as an adult is that if let's say there was an anxious attachment as a baby, which is where they um, are worried that they're not going to be attended to so they have to work extra hard to make sure that they get attended to that might result in someone being preoccupied as an adult attachment which would be just constantly worried about the moods of another person um the what's going on with another person more so than what's going on with themselves because they need to make sure that the per- other person in the relationship is doing okay enough so that they themselves can be attended to. So that might be a preoccupation with other people and how they're feeling and thinking. And um, That's interesting because yeah. I would think that they would be preoccupied with themselves because they, they learned that their own needs weren't met when they needed them met. But you're saying it might manifest differently than that. Well, it's interesting because there, it's it's really the same thing. That's really what we're what we're understanding that the preoccupation with the other person is really so that their own needs could be met. So being preoccupied with the other person is really the same as being preoccupied with yourself. So I think that and those type of things can be easily overlooked as unhealthy. Because they could easily be in the category of they're just such a thoughtful person. They're constantly doing kind things for other people. They're always thinking about the other person's needs. And I'm not trying to minimize from that because obviously those are really nice qualities. But they could be manifestations of something that's very insecure and unhealthy um, and not necessarily the most secure manifestation of something. And is that necessarily like only in the extreme or even, you know, in a sort of balanced way? Um, well, it's, it really depends on the relationship to the thing, which is that if the relationship to the, let's say, let's say you're someone who's always doing favors for other people, but your relationship to those favors is an unhealthy relationship, it can be a little bit imbalanced or a manifestation of something unhealthy. In other words, we can't look at the thing itself, like the result itself. We have to look at the relationship to the act. Or so if they're, the, they're not like yeah. feeling really happy about doing all those favors or they're doing tons and tons of favors or always looking out for other people but then feel resentful about it, then that... Yeah, the constant anxiety about what happens if I don't do it, if I'm 
that if, if I'm not making sure that they're okay, um, what, you know, and they're constantly in a state of anxiety about mm-hmm. it, that lets us know a little bit about what's going on. Got it. Okay. So basically we've talked about the age of a a healthy attachment. We've talked about, um, you know, what healthy versus unhealthy attachment is, um, kind of like in the extreme. Um, and we've talked a little bit about how it can manifest later on in life. Um, so what is sort of healthy attachment? Like say, you know, there's a young mom listening to this and wants to make sure that she attaches appropriately to her child. What would be needed to ensure that, you know, later on in life, her child has, uh, obviously she can't ensure it all herself. There's way too many other factors too. Um, but if she really wants to do her part, um, and not have her kid on this couch about her later on in life, um, what is her job sort of like, what is her role in creating a healthy attachment or any other main attachment figure? A good question, and I'm glad you recognize as you were asking it that no one can ensure anything. You can just do the best that you can, of course. Um, and what, when we're talking about needing to attend to and um, be emotionally in tuned and in sync and reciprocal with with a baby, we're not talking about 100% of the time. We're not even talking about 50% of the time. We're talking about like 30% of the time, which means that in order to do the work of trying to secure a a healthy attachment, a secure attachment, a mother needs to be a good enough mother. That's what the, the scientific term that is used is being a good enough mother. And the same can sometimes go for being a good enough therapist. Um, which is a strange thing to think about where um, we're saying that you only need to be good enough. And that's because really the role of a mother is to try to create a working model within the baby so that there's something, some symbol and some idea of what it's like to be attended to. So it's not something that they need to experience 100% of the time in order for there to be a working model of it internally. Um, It's just something that needs to be enough of the time so that the working model could be instilled in them. Um, But whenever mothers, um, parents, or just people who want to have healthy relationships ask about these type of things, my response is always the same, that the thing that you can do the most is work through your own issues. Um, If you want to make sure that you're not getting caught up or stuck in old patterns, in traumas that are not resolved, in things that are happening unconsciously that you haven't really attended to, then you have to work through your stuff. Not everyone knows that they have things to work through because not all trauma or issues are these obvious um, traumas or issues. And some people might respond and say, I had a great childhood, there's nothing going on. And I'm not saying that you should look for problems, but when there, when you notice a problem or when you're unsure of how to deal with something or how to cope with something, the first 
line of action should be, how do I resolve this within myself? How can I work through this within myself? What might I be bumping into? I notice that every single time this type of interaction happens, I react in this way. What am I being, what am I getting stuck with? Um, and who can I go to to try to resolve it and work through it? Um, because that's all we can do. You know, the, and when we were talking about how trauma gets transmitted, especially in a time where there's tremendous amounts of trauma, we don't have the luxury of working through and processing the trauma. We just have to survive. But if we are in a time where we do have the luxury of working through trauma and working through our, our childhood or historical issues, we really need to do that in order to make sure that we're not unintentionally bumping into things that will then transmit the same traumas to the children that are in our lives. And it seems like from what you're saying that that unresolved trauma can transmit like from generation to generation to generation if no one ever takes the second to say, you know, I'm going to stop this because I recognize that it's an issue. Right. Exactly. And it will get transmitted because that's so often when when a person does go to resolve it, if someone bumps into something emotionally and then they go to resolve it, so often they find out that it's the source of it is something that they bumped into, that their own parents bumped into, or that really got activated in them when they were children. Um, and so if there's no resolution to it, there's no way of processing it, it's just stuck. And it's going to keep on coming up until you can finally look at it and say, it stops here. I'm not letting, I don't want this to get transmitted again to the next generation and I need to work through it. So if someone recognizes that they themselves grew up with like an unhealthy attachment or something that like was a perpetuated trauma, a little T trauma, um, you know, like you said, or not in all, not in all cases, is it like a major trauma that someone might say like, oh, I'm going to go to therapy for. Um, but what if it's something that's relatively minor, but still affected them in some way? Um, what, what is something that someone can do to work through it? Well, you know, developing healthy attachments or if there is a, an unhealthy, uh, an insecure attachment or trauma, um, it's, that happens in childhood, it's not that there is no possibility of now getting a secure attachment. I mean, that's the whole world of therapy where it can be an earned secure attachment. And therapists are not the only way that you could get a secure attachment or learn to build a secure attachment. Many people can build secure attachments in their marriages. They could, they could be very insecurely attached in childhood but have a very secure attachment in their relationship and start building more security in those um, relationships. Um, so it's not only in therapy that it must be worked out with us, but of course, if it's a more significant trauma, I do recommend therapy. Um, but a book that I, I do recommend a book, um, I have it, it's called um, Parenting from the Inside Out, and it's by Dan Siegel and Mary Harsel. and it's really a how-to book on how to raise children, um, understanding 
from an attachment perspective and addressing your own issues. So becoming more informed is really important. Um, And the same way that we learn to cope with other things that are difficult, where, you know, someone is about to do something that's scary for them, they might take a few moments to do some deep breathing, do some grounding, do some things that help regulate them. The same might be appropriate if they're about to come home and they know that their child pushes a certain button or really dysregulates them. They might want to make sure they only enter into that into that home or into that place in a more grounded, ready-to-work, reflective state. Um, and rely and reach out to people who could support you because it's really hard work that you're doing all the time. And it's really important to have a support system to help through it. So one more question, and then I'm going to let you go. But um, let's say a parent, you know, is listening to this and recognizes that maybe when their child was really little, they could have done a better job. Um, Now their child is, you know, a little older, a teenager, even an adult maybe. Um, Is there any way to reconcile either... um, you know, poor attachment methods, or um, maybe the parent was a little neglectful, maybe that child developed some, you know, collective trauma over the years. Um, Is there any way for a parent to correct that later on in the child's life? Um, I think that it, it, I think anything can be worked through if people are willing and are reflective enough to work through it. Now, sometimes there are parents who like the idea of working through it, but it's difficult for them to actually do the work of working through it. So it's not always possible in, in practice, but if someone is willing to work through it and they have someone who's receptive to work through it with them, I think that healing is possible. Um, and it is possible to try to have a better attachment Um, because again like I said earlier the mother helps instill a working model within the baby a working model means something that means something that could expand and grows over time so it's not the hope is that it's not rigid and fixed and that it could be it could evolve over time and then heal and there could be room for um different kinds of attachments and different kinds of relationships that open up from it. But I think the key really is a really willing, receptive participant in working through it. And sometimes, like I said, there's the idea, like they'd like to really be there, but it's really difficult to fully take ownership and reconcile what really happened. And part of that is probably perpetuation of why things were unhealthy in the first place. Right, and also transmitted trauma that- On their part. Right. Right. So it sounds like sort of taking responsibility to break the chain in so many situations is really like so key because, Mm -hmm. you know, it not only does that help you resolve your own issues from the past, um, which everyone has to some extent, whether major or minor or somewhere in between, but then also you're giving, you know, your children, future generations, the, a more, um, healthy future and the ability for them to perpetuate healthy behaviors. Right. And 
and resiliency and being adaptive. But I, I do want to say one thing that might come up for people. I know that there's often a reaction when we talk about childhood trauma and just issues with parenting. Um, there's a lot of fear, maybe just inherited trauma, uh, a lot of fear surrounded surrounding blame and um, putting um, responsibility on someone else. And like, there's a lot of resistance sometimes in talking about these things in therapy because people are worried that the therapist or they will blame the parents and everything is the parents' fault. And that's the complete opposite of what we're trying to do, which is just understanding the impact of something. It's not about blame. It's about understanding. And the same way where you can go outside when it's raining and then get wet, and you know that the impact of going out in the rain is getting wet, versus I blame the rain, it's the rain's fault that I'm wet, and how could the rain do this to me? It's not about blame, it's about understanding the impact, and from that place of understanding, we can then make different choices and maybe um, just learn more about ourselves and how we interact and, and how we impact other people in our lives. And just to add to what you just said, you mentioned earlier about the, the quality of empathy um, um, that so many of us as Jews possess that's also been passed down. I think that we can certainly employ empathy when, when you're looking back and trying to understand but not employing the blame game. Like, just as an example, we were talking about the Holocaust, right? So, like, how important it is to understand why certain people who are descendants of Holocaust survivors or Holocaust survivors themselves were affected in certain ways and maybe perpetuated certain unhealthy behaviors, but to no fault of their own. It's just understanding what they went through that caused them to be this way and do these things. And no one is blaming them because they went through something difficult themselves um, that impacted them in, in such a negative way. Um, and the same could be said for other situations that are less extreme, but just to understand why that person might have acted a certain way or you know behaved a certain way or caused a certain trauma or neglect it might be baggage that they've been carrying for generations so I think like you said using empathy is more useful than using blame but just understanding rather than shaming or but there could be a lot of trauma surrounding using empathy and then we go straight to blame so that's also part of the sorry I guess it's just there's a lot of layers to it and a lot of nuance and a lot to work through Right, and so many individual manifestations that each person has to like really understand their own circumstance. Can't put a blanket statement over it. Right, exactly. All right, well, Essie, thank you so much for joining us. Your insight is incredible, and um, I think these are topics that are super valuable for everybody because everybody is a child, and um, you've we've all experienced something in life, uh, whether, you know, the positive overshadows the negative or vice versa. There's always a combination of both. Um, so like you said, for each person to understand what they've been through is so important so that they can uh, work through their own issues, have better quality of life themselves, and then Mirza Shem transmit uh, better things to future generations. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Take care.